good. Well, good morning, church. My name is Doug, one of your pastors. It's a joy to be able to be with you here this morning and to worship our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, together. If you have, uh, first of all, if you're, if you're new here, if you're visiting, so glad that you're here. I want to welcome you. Uh, we are, as a church, uh, this summer going through the Ten Commandments as we see them in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Um, we're looking at the Sixth Commandment this morning, the Sixth Commandment. So chapter 5, verse 17. And as you are finding that passage, I will open in prayer. Father God, Lord, as we just reflect on the grace, Lord, that you have given us freely um, in your son, Jesus, Lord, I pray that we are, first of all, that we recognize, as, as Brick was saying earlier, um, our desperate need for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness. And just as we consider how you have revealed that to us and offered that to us through your son, Jesus, Lord, we are so grateful this morning, so grateful. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a people who recognize the tremendous grace that you have given to us, Lord, and who live our lives um, as a result of that. pray right now as we consider your word this morning as a church that you would use this word, which we believe to be eternal and true, Lord, and we just ask that you would write it on our hearts. Would you help us to be a people who are shaped by the very word of God and help this morning uh, be a step in that direction, Father. We love you. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I've lived in Iowa City now for some 20 years, and I absolutely love Iowa City. Just love this community. So much about Iowa City that I love, okay? There are, however, just a few frustrations, a few frustrations. And I'll just share, just share one of them with you this morning by way of an opening illustration. One frustration I've had historically since living in this town, and maybe you can relate is that I find myself, after 20 years of living here, to this very day, if I'm pulling out of my driveway and heading towards some other destination here in town, it's not until I get out of the driveway, put the car in drive, that I begin to think, okay, what's the best way to get there, okay? <laughs> I don't know, if you've lived here long enough, you know that there are so many ways to get from point A to point B in Iowa City, but there is no one clear, obvious path. Almost to get anywhere, unless you're going like a block down the street, okay? It's just, oh, it's so far. I find myself time and time again going, you know, even to this building from my home, multiple ways throughout the week, and then coming back in a different direction. There's not... No clear and obvious path to get to your destination in this community, and it drives me nuts. Maybe you can sense my frustration. Maybe you can share in my frustration. Well, as we approach God and His Word, I am so grateful that that is not how God does us. He makes it so abundantly clear the path that we are to go in this life. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a, just a complete plethora of alternative paths that this world tries to offer us, suggests that this is the right way. Or maybe it's this path. There are so many options out there, but God, in His grace, reveals to us, through His Word, the way we are to live in this life. 
and the path we are, ta- are to take so that we can arrive in the next life, in eternity with him. The Ten Commandments for us, what we have discovered is they, they are words, what we're saying throughout this series, is they are words to live by. They offer us guidance and instruction on which path we are to take through this life. What we've seen so far is we've looked at the first five commandments. We've, we've learned a great deal about worship, the, the importance of worship. We've learned a great deal about rest, the necessity for us to be people who enter into the rest that can only come from God. We, we even learned last week about the priority of family and how God uses the, the institution of the family as a way to help shape the way we live our lives with one another, but also to direct our hearts ultimately that we would be people who, who live under his authority, who see our lives as belonging ultimately to him. One thing that I'm hoping that you will pick up along the way through this study of the Ten Commandments is that it's, it should be very clear that God has made us relational creatures. We are relational beings. He has made us for relationships. Maybe that's a phrase that you've heard over and over again. He has made us as people who, who live relationally, vertically. We, we live in relationship to God. And the Ten Commandments show us how we are to live in that relationship. And then also there are horizontal relationships. There are relationships we have with our neighbor. The Ten Commandments give us instruction and guidance on how we are to relate to one another. The Ten Commandments map for us the path that God has laid out for us. They are words, you can be sure of it, that we as God's people are to live by. And the same can be said with this Sixth Commandment. If you're going to memorize any of the commandments, this is likely the easiest one for you to commit to memory. So kids, this is your chance. Memorize this verse. You can do it this morning, I promise you. Very simple. Let me just read... Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. This is what it says. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. This is God's word. You shall not murder. It's the sixth commandment. Short and simple. Not so much. What we'll see this morning is that this commandment, with this sixth word... The Lord calls us as his people, tells us that we must cherish all human life. What the sixth commandment teaches us as God's people, the the path that God has laid for us to walk, is that we are to be a people who cherish all human life. So this morning, as we consider the sixth commandment, We'll look at, sort of make three movements. The first is, we'll just consider the what of the commandment. What is the commandment saying? What does it mean? We'll consider also together the why. Why does this need to be commanded? And then thirdly, we'll look at the how. Not how to murder, but how to obey the commandment. Okay? Get your mind out of the gutter for a second. Here we go. The first one. Point number one. What is the commandment saying? What's the commandment saying? You shall not murder. Of all the commandments that we've considered for so far, this is clearly the most straightforward. In the original language, in fact, it's simply two words. No murder. No murder. 
It's pretty straightforward. It's hard to get messed up. Some of you may have learned the translation, memorized the translation from a different translation, the King James Version, which says, Thou shalt not kill. The Hebrew Bible, in fact, has eight different words that get at this heart, that speak to this idea of killing. And it's really important for us to get at the, at the essence of what this commandment means, to understand the difference between killing and murder. It's, it's why I think that if you have the ESV translation that says, You shall not murder... That that's the right, that's the appropriate translation. The word is murder. It's, it's, to kill is different. To kill is just a general term referring to killing of animals. Warfare or capital punishment could also be killing. A term that appears hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament. Killing, to kill, is, is to take the life of another person and it is, is to do so often at times in the Old Testament. You'll see that's even permitted. It's even commanded in the Old Testament, largely in those two categories, in warfare and capital punishment. This word, however, is not translated to kill. The better word is to murder, which is a more narrowly defined term under sort of the general category of to kill. To murder would be killing that is not permitted, that is unauthorized, that is malicious. This is the word that the commandment is telling us that we shall not do is you shall not do any unlawful killing. That's what the commandment is saying. The question is, for many of us, does this really apply to me? Is this really something that we need to hear? The, the other nine commandments seem to speak much easier to sort of universal human temptations, Okay? Yet, when we consider the sixth commandment, it's very easy for us to think that we are somehow sort of distant from this commandment, that this commandment doesn't really speak to our reality. My guess would be nobody here is clamoring for us to just take up arms and start killing people ruthlessly. That would be my guess, my hope. My hope would be that the people that are sitting in our midst here this morning are not thinking, shoot, now I can't kill my neighbor. That would just be, that would be, I hope, that would be, I hope, okay? But here's the deal. As much as we may think this commandment is removed from us, that we are somehow distant, the truth is we're actually not that distant from it. It actually is incredibly relevant. I'll give you two reasons. The first is, let's just consider sort of our moment in time, our moment in history. We are... 21st century, we are on the heels of what is really the most murderous century on human records. There's murder certainly going on all around us if you just think of the homicide rate, if you think of abortion, but even more than that, we are on the heels of a century in which humanity discovered how easily death could be accomplished on a massive scale. One historian and social theorist, Eric Hopsbaum, wrote, that 187 million people, now just even trying to get your mind around that number is challenging. Even trying to account, the number, if you do just research on this, you'll see different numbers and there's lots of margin here. But he would say 187 million people were killed or allowed to die by human decision in a period of just about 75 years between the end of World War II 
and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. In those 75 years, 187 million people were murdered. Now, what's even crazier when you think about that number is the good majority of those individuals were really just at the sort of the, the responsibility at the hands of just four men in this world. Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. Carnage on such a large scale is hard for us to even wrap our minds around. Now, this, you just think we are the successors of this generation, a generation that learned how to kill on a massive scale. So massive was the scale, they had to invent language to describe what was happening. Genocide. Not to mention the fact, if you also think about our day and age, how our culture has trivialized murder and desensitized an entire generation to its reality, mainly through Hollywood and video games. In fact, a study by the American Psychological Association estimates that by the time a child finishes elementary school, they will have watched some 8,000 murders and 100,000 acts of violence on a screen. That's significant. That's why Pope John Paul II refers to the former century as a century that, that developed a culture of death and sort of desensitized it towards us. So we are not that far. Many of us are products of that century, right? Came to age in the 80s and 90s. We are not that distant, not as distant as we think from this commandment. The second reason why we are not so distant is not just because of our sort of place in time, but it's because of what Jesus, how Jesus instructs us to think about this commandment. When, when Jesus speaks to this commandment, Jesus goes directly for the root of murder, which is ultimately found in every human heart. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to to hellfire. Jesus takes the sixth commandment, and essentially what he says is that, yes, what you do out here, how you externally interact with your neighbor is a significant concern, but even more than that, internally, the thoughts, the emotions, the feelings, what happens in your heart before there is any external action is just as significant. John Calvin says this in commentary on this verse. And the human life is instructed not merely in outward decency, but inward spiritual righteousness. Jesus in the Gospels goes directly to the human heart and says the penalty for both of those is the same. Is the same. Jesus does not overturn the command not to murder. Rather, we're told, Jen Wilkins says, Jesus challenges, love the way she puts this. Jesus doesn't overturn the command. Rather, 
Jesus challenges our affection for bare minimum compliance. See, like I said before, many of us probably sitting in this room could say, (laughs) murder, no blood on my hands. This doesn't apply to me. What Jesus says is not so fast. See, we are, we are addicted as people to bare minimum compliance. And what Jesus tells us is that every single one of us, every single one of us is in desperate need of God's forgiveness. Desperate need of God's forgiveness. Jesus takes care to help his hearers understand the inward sin which accounts for why murder happens in the first place. As a result, there's nobody in this room who can simply skate on past the sixth commandment. Whether it's a moment of road rage, maybe even on your way to church this morning or on your way to work tomorrow morning. Maybe it's an expression of outrage on social media. Maybe it's a difficult situation with a colleague or a family member or a neighbor. Time and time again, they can just get under your skin. All of us know the feeling of being annoyed and having anger well up inside us, directed at another human being. And Jesus says, let it not be. Let it not be. Next obvious question is why? Why? Why is this commandment commanded? Why is it commanded? This commandment is unique in that it may be, of all the commandments, the most universally recognized. Not a ton of controversy around this one. You shall not murder, right? My guess, in fact, is it's it's so much recognized, I would be willing to wager that if you went out, let's say in the Ped Mall, today and asked, just did a random poll with one simple question, is murder, is it okay to murder people? My guess would be that probably a hundred of those hundred people would say, no, that's not acceptable, okay? This is, by and large, sort of a universally recognized principle. Why? Why? Well, well, first is this, it's a matter of pragmatics, right? Most would agree That this is just the way it is. If you were to ask those people, why is it not okay to murder people? Many would say this is just the way it is. And it's the way things ought to be. To tolerate murder is to tolerate a world without order in a world where everyone suffers and lives in constant fear. And most would agree that's not good for society. That's not good for society. However... Christians' primary motivation, when we think of just ethics in general, is not utilitarian in nature. Our primary motivation and foundation for ethics and morality is not bound up primarily in pragmatics, okay? It's not utilitarian in nature. And thank God for that. If the only way we can determine that murder is wrong is by declaring that it's not good for society then we must answer another question. And that question is this. Who gets to determine what is good for society? Is it Adolf Hitler? Is it Margaret Sanger? Who who gets to determine what is good for society? No, see, as Christians, 
our foundation for ethics and morality is not bound up in its utilitarian nature. But rather, it's not, it's not a matter of, it's not pragmatically that we come to this conclusion. Rather, it's theologically. The Bible offers a more substantive explanation as to why we should not murder. Less concerned with the results, rather, the Bible drives us to a high valuation of human life. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is what God says to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Very simply, that anyone, if you were to go back and verses into verse 5, you'd see that it makes clear that man or beast, anyone who takes the life of a human being will be held accountable. It's such a high offense that anybody who takes it unauthorized will be held accountable. So serious so serious is this offense that their life will be taken from them as a result. Why? Well, this verse answers the question, why? If I had my Bible open and a pen out, I would circle the word for in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, because it says this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for, here's the theology, Here's the doctrine. God made man in his own image. Why is this such a big deal? Because God says he made us in his image. Because we're made in his image, we must value God's life. God, or all human life is to be revered because it reflects God's image. Human beings are to be treated with dignity because they're made in the image of God. It does not matter what race that human being is. It does not matter what their background is. It does not matter what their religion is. It, it doesn't even matter what, what kind of rebellious life they embrace. If they are a human being, they reflect the very image of God and therefore they are precious. They are sacred in this world. And the way we treat human life, this is what's so critical. Because of this fact, because every human being under the sound of this voice, every one of us is a reflection of the creator of the universe. Because of this fact, the way we treat human life reveals a great deal about how seriously we take God. I'll say that one more time. The way that we treat human life reveals a great deal about how seriously we take God. And the way God administers his accountability or our accountability to him and the wrongful taking of life shows how seriously he takes human life. We are accountable to God for life because life, human life, bears God's image. So if this is the fact, if this is what the Bible teaches, then murder is an attack not merely against God's good creation. Murder is an attack against the very glory of God. Not just harm. Yes, there's harm and murder done to a victim and a victim's family, 
but there's also harm. There is subtraction from God's glory. All human life is sacred. All human life is sacred. That's why this commandment is so significant. We are image bearers. I mean, that's how, that's how much God loves us. In creation, he did something unique for man and for woman that he took his image and he placed his very image in us. And our jobs as humans, as, as we interact with each other as humans, is that we respect one another because they are image bearers of the almighty God. That's why it's so important. Third question. How do we do that? If all human life is sacred, we know we should not murder, how do we cherish all human life? How do we do it? I'm going to focus the last couple moments of the message on how to get practical with this. How do we obey this commandment today? We must cherish all human life how do we do that? Well, in order to answer the how, what I'd like to do is for us to spend a few minutes thinking in terms and categories of who, okay? Um, there's a good chance, I'll just, before I get into this, say that there's likely some people in this room, there's likely, I'll likely say something that will start to make your gut churn. <laughs> it's the truth, okay? And part of the reason is because many of us spend most of the week bombarded with images and with messages from media, okay? that are trying to tell us how to think about this issue. And our, our, our focus this morning is to open up God's word and to let God speak for himself, okay? So there's likely I'll offend somebody in this room. I'm just gonna say that. Luckily, I'm going on vacation on Wednesday. So <laughs> all comments and questions can be directed to Dave Foster. Bless his heart, okay? His email, I don't know if it's on the screen or not, but I'm sure they'll get it up there at some point. How do we follow this, Okay. Let me start again. Who? Let's think in categories of who. The first one is how do we cherish all human life? The first who I want us to think about is the unborn. How do we cherish all human life? Let's think about first the unborn. If we cherish the unborn, we would see abortion as it is murder, an act of violence against a human being a human that bears the image of God. The murder of an unborn child is a subtraction from God's glory. They're precious to God, and they should be precious to us. Stats are kind of hard on this one, but some, I think the most recent one I saw was about 800,000 babies aboard in the United States alone. In Iowa, I think the stats, they fluctuate somewhere between three to 7,000 a year in the state of Iowa. These numbers should make our stomachs churn because these are human beings. These babies are human beings made in the image of God. And as God's people, we want to protect God's image. It's so important to us. It's so important to us. And there's a variety of ways you can do that. I think first and foremost is by praying. By praying for people in leadership positions, by praying for families in difficult positions who are facing this challenge. 
this decision sometimes? Committing ourselves to pray. Is this something that we have on our prayer journal? It should be because it is a significant crisis in our nation and has been for some time. Obviously, secondly, there's policy. Um, there's ways that we can um, utilize our vote. By we, we can advocate for the rights of the unborn. And third, maybe the one that I would focus on is um, so prayer policy. The third one is people. Um, we are people who believe the truth of God's word, and we are to stand on that truth. And we are to interact with folks according to that truth and to be ambassadors, representatives of that truth as well. And we are to let this word determine not just the content, not just the words that comes out of our mouth, but the way in which it comes out. Just the narrative around this issue is very, very difficult. Um, and God cares just as much how we say things as what we say. We treat people, even the people who disagree with us on this issue, as human beings whose life should be cherished as well. Secondly, so we cherish those who are unborn. We also cherish those who are born. To be pro-life is more than thinking about how to protect the unborn. It is that, yes, but it's much more than that. Mike Gerson, a speechwriter for George W. Bush, used to always say that unborn children should be protected by law and welcomed in life. I love the way he put it. Protected by law and welcomed in life. And I think maybe if there's an area where the, I'll just use this term because most of us know what I'm talking about, the pro-life movement oftentimes gets wrong, is that welcoming to life part. Um, I think if an individual who goes to church here who has just this phenomenal gift of hospitality, every time we go over to their house, I mean, it is just a, it's just an awesome experience, right? They, they have thought through every little detail, every little detail as they welcome us into their home. They've thought through what they're going to feed us. They've thought through a place to sit and make sure that it's in order. There's some semblance of order throughout the way that we use not just the space, but also our time. They think about the kind of food that we would want to eat. They anticipate our likes and our needs. My goodness, this person knows how to welcome somebody in their home. And when we're in their home, if there is a sense that I'm uncomfortable, it's significant to them, right? It matters to them. I think the same thing is true about how we welcome children into this world that we are committed to, to not just the children, but also the families who have to make difficult decisions, who might be in, in unfortunate circumstances. Do we offer help to the families, to the mothers? And how do we treat children once they come into this world? Are they just a, a nuisance, something that we tolerate or dismiss? Or do we say no? They are reflections of the creator of the universe. And they are, there is so much possibility bound up in these young people. It's one of the reasons why, I mean, we take this so seriously at Parkview. It's one of the reasons why if you were to go to any, any one of our campuses, you will see a, another, a partnership with a North Campus, it's a daycare. Here at Central Campus, it's a preschool. Over at East Campus, it's Faith Academy. Committed to coming alongside of children, helping them grow, caring for them, offering help for their families. It's a, it's a huge deal. We must be committed to those, not just who are unborn, but those once they are born, standing up for their rights. 
Thirdly, we also must cherish those who are older than us. Those who are older should be honored. They should be respected. And I fear that this is also a practice that our culture has lost. Those who can no longer care for themselves, guess what? We should care for them as Christians. We don't see them as an inconvenience, but as a precious image bearer of God. And I know that there's some in this room who are actively doing that for aging parents, aging grandparents. Bless you. Bless you. It was one of the greatest gifts for me is to watch um, Craig and Amy Welt at East Campus over the years care for Amy's mother. Went to be with the Lord this summer. What a huge gift to watch them week after week bring her to church, care for her and love her, honor her and respect her. It was a wonderful picture of how we do this well as a church. We care for those who are older than us. If you're here today and you might say, I would classify myself as older. Let me just tell you, God has not put you out to pasture. Okay? You are critical to this church. And if you're here today and you would consider yourself younger, you need to hear that message as well. Those sitting around you who have more wisdom, who have more experience, they are precious gifts to our church. Get to know them. Ask questions, learn from them. Fourthly, those who look different than us. We are to cherish life, all life, all human life. We are to cherish those who look different than us. Treating people unequally on the basis of their race and ethnicity is another way of breaking this commandment. Dismissing racism as an irrelevant issue isn't the solution. It's very clear, as you read throughout the Bible, racism is a major problem and a reality in our world, whether we want to accept that or not. It is. Image of God, every one of us is made in the image of God. Jesus directs us, love your neighbor. When Jesus died on the cross, guess what he made? A church, one new people from all of the people, one new man. It's one of the glorious realities about the gospel. While the world out there wants to embrace this truth, sometimes where the substance of how and why they do it kind of falls short. Jesus is very clear. He died for every single one of us, and his blood covers every single one of our sins if we trust in him for our forgiveness. And as we do that, he makes us a beautiful, glorious people. He reveals the, the very manifold wisdom of God is revealed through the church, this multi-ethnic gathering of people. It's amazing. We have something to offer the world that they desperately want, a way by which people from different languages, from different tribes, from different races, from different cultures can come together in unity under the blood of Jesus. Our temptation oftentimes is to dismiss the pain of our brothers and sisters who have experienced trauma and who have endured a history of racism in this nation. We want to, I've seen it all too often in the last couple of years, just dismiss it away. And there's probably nothing more painful that we can do. We cherish all human life. And when we see a human who is hurting, who is broken, we demonstrate compassion. You know what we do as Christians? If we don't understand, guess what we do? We try to understand. 
this one might be maybe the harder one. We also cherish those who think differently than us. Those who think differently than us. This is hard because we live in an outrage culture. I think everybody in the last couple of years knows exactly what I'm talking about. Those who have a different opinion than you in this outrage culture have instantly qualified themselves for total annihilation. No questions asked. It's so much more expedient and way more popular to turn everything into an emergency, and as a result, that individual should just be completely canceled. Not to mention it's more satisfying to feel completely justified in the hate and destruction of your enemy. That's why it's so popular right now. See, that's the problem. We are tempted to treat those who think differently. You could also substitute the word vote differently than us as the enemy that must be stopped on all accounts. It's the temptation. Rather than a neighbor who must be loved on all accounts. That's our instruction. Even those who think differently than us. Person you disagree with, really, no matter what the topic of debate is, is made in God's image. And because of that, that person is a precious gift and ought to be treated that way. Just because someone has a different opinion than you, just because they may treat you and your opinion a particular way, doesn't give you license to murder them in your heart. They're made in the image of God, and they are to be treated that way. See, from the very beginning of Christianity, the belief of the Imago Dei, the belief, the conviction that as people we are made in God's image has been so practical. The truth is, I could go on and on and on, fill in the blank. People who dress different, who speak different, who smell different, who live different, who have a different amount of money in their bank account, who live in a different part of the of town. We could just go on and on and on and on and on. This is what is so beautiful about Christianity. And this doctrine, this belief, has given shape to Christian culture, the way that we live. And as a result, from the very beginning, do you know what Christians have been? you know what the church has been? The church has been a champion of humanity. From the very beginning, against abortion. And not just in the way that they spoke about it, but in the activities that they leaned into to care for the families, to care for the babies that were born. They were against infanticide. The early church was not a one-issue church. <laughs> if, they, if it wasn't one issue, you know what that one issue was? The glory of God. And as it's revealed to us in each other, it's precious and to be treated that way. They were champions for the poor. They were champions for women. They were champions for orphans. Champions for the weak. They put the rest of the culture to shame because they believed in the sanctity of life. And our belief in that should have the same effect. We should be champions for the poor. Champions for women, champions for orphans, 
for the weak, for the elderly, champions for humanity. One last group, just real quick before I close. We must cherish our own life. This is really important too. Second leading cause of death in the U.S. between ages 10 and 35 is suicide. It's increased 23% between 09 and 2018, steadily increasing over the past 10 years. There's some here today struggling in life. Difficult relationships, no direction, overcome by a sense of sadness so heavy you simply don't know if you can go on. Maybe feeling alone, convinced nobody cares. Maybe that describes you. Well, I assure you, your life is precious to God. Your life matters to him. So much, not only did he put his image in you, but he sent his son to die for you. He, he gave his son to redeem you, to save you. He wants you. Even when it feels like nobody else does, God does. This is a wonderful truth. Your life is precious to God. And here's the deal this morning, folks. The truth of the matter is we are all breakers of the sixth commandment in one way or another. Odds are one of the groups of people that I just mentioned maybe caused you to get on edge just a bit. At the same time, I, I recognize that there's hardly anybody here who's actually committed murder. Hopefully nobody. But if you have anger in your heart, you have blood on your hands. That's the truth. So what do we do? Well, we look to the cross where we see hanging on the cross, hands nailed to the cross, Jesus the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The only man who ever lived his life, entire life, without violating any of the commandments. Never committed murder with his hands or his heart. Yet this man was murdered for you and for me. Crucified, gave up his life so that we might experience forgiveness and freedom to live the life that he's called us to. He gave that life as a ransom for us. And if we confess our sins to him this morning, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, even this. What an awesome God we serve. He values life so much. So should we. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are a great and awesome, a loving God. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to be a people who serve you, who obey you, and who love you with all of our heart, and who value and love our neighbor as ourselves. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.